EMDR is a tool. If you've heard of REM sleep, REM sleep is rapid eye movement. So when we're dreaming, our eyes are darting back and forth quickly underneath our eyelids. And what that does is it helps us process traumatic events. And so, cause dreaming they say is our subconscious mind, right? Kind of going to work. So EMDR, forces the bilateral stimulation of the brain, which is either by having them follow our fingers, which is, you know, the EMDR process, or you can do tapping, you know, tapping the knees one by one. That's another method to be able to do bilateral stimulation in the brain. So both sides of the brain can communicate with each other. The fact that you were a weightlifter and the doctor believed because your muscles in your back were strong, it actually prevented you from becoming paralyzed. And there are there's a lot of evidence that supports that with fractures and broken bones, especially as people age in their 70s and 80s and 90s, that when you do resistance training and weight training, it's that pressure, it's that resistance and pressure on the bones and on the musculoskeletal system that actually determines whether you're going to die from literally just a fall, falling and breaking a hip or you're going to live and be strong and recover from that is how much muscle you have and how dense your bones are. And bone density actually has a lot more to do with resistance to the musculoskeletal system like weight training or if somebody lives in Sardinia, Italy in a blue zone for example and they walk miles and miles a day and they carry buckets of water or you know bags of food for example up and down hills they're putting weight on their bodies they're carrying stones for their gardens and different things they're constantly carrying things and putting that positive stress that hormetic stressor on the body these people are not dying from broken hips and falling and breaking bones and things like that they're actually living 80 90 100 years plus because they do some form of resistance training consciously or unconsciously you know just because their life demands it or you're actually going to the gym and strengthening your body so as you age it's essential as you know but a lot of people don't as you age it's really really essential that we do resistance training you don't have to be lifting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds of weight welcome to the nathan crane podcast nathan is a certified holistic cancer coach 20-time award-winning documentary filmmaker competitive CrossFit athlete, and best-selling author of Becoming Cancer-Free. With nearly two decades in independent natural health research and education, Nathan shares his top solutions for preventing and overcoming disease while optimizing health and improving human performance. Each week, Nathan brings on highly renowned experts to share natural and holistic health science, strategies, and breakthroughs for living your healthiest, happiest, and most fulfilling life. And now, here's Nathan Crane. Welcome back to the podcast. I hope all of you are having an amazing New Year so far. I hope the resolutions that you have set, the goals and dreams you've set for yourself, uh, that you have put into a good daily action plan and you're working towards it every single day. I know by this time of the year, a lot of people's resolutions have kind of failed for lack of a better word, meaning they had great goals and ambitions at the beginning of the year and they didn't have a good daily action plan in place to fulfill those resolutions. And so I would encourage you before we get into today's podcast, think about what you really want for your life, what you really want for your health, what you really want for your relationships, whatever it is that's most important for you. For most people, 
at least in our podcast, is their physical health, but also mental and emotional, spiritual health. Um, and I'd also say, take a look at what is big enough to pull you forward through the challenging times, right? If it's just, I want to lose 20 pounds so I can look better. For me, that's never been a strong enough goal to keep me going to the gym. You know, I've always had to have something bigger than just how I look. Looks is nice. You know, looking good is great. I think that's a benefit. And for some people, I think a really small percentage of the population, looks is strong enough to keep them on a healthy routine. But for me and for many others, I think you have to find something deeper and bigger, something that pulls you through the challenging times so that you can continue with your goals of going to the gym, eating healthier, you know, whether it's weight loss, it's, it's um, dealing with a chronic disease like cancer, it's improving your relationship with your spouse, it's having more energy, less pain, less fatigue, healing your gut, or maybe you're dealing with another chronic condition that you're trying to resolve. Whatever that is, find the deeper reason behind it. And that could be, look, you want to be here for your grandchildren and be able to hike with them in the mountains in your 70s, 80s, 90s, or at least be there and be in decent enough health where you can spend time with them and enjoy your time with them. Be a good grandparent. It's certainly one of my long-term goals that continues to pull me forward. But also look at someone like Ruth Heydrich who is in her 80s, it's ran hundreds of marathons and, and uh, Ironmans and has won many, many, many world records and has continued her journey of setting these um, small goals along the way. Go run a 5K, go run a 10K, you know, go run this race, that race. Have different kinds of experiences that you can train for and that will pull you forward to actually have a, a short-term goal because sometimes it's like these long-term visions and goals that can take years and years are hard to stick to so set something three months out six months out you know where you can go and experience that goal starting you know st stepping stones towards achieving your long-term dreams and goals and really for me and i think those of us who have had a lot of success of achieving goals that we set is more about turning it into a lifestyle. You know, for me, health is a lifestyle, the way that I live. And when you feel good, you eat good, uh, and, and you can, ha you have more energy and clarity and vitality in your life, then you want to continue doing those things. I sauna a couple days a week because I know what it's doing for my health and I feel amazing when I do it. Hey, so if you've been following me for any time now, you know that I often talk about Helin 951, the nitrogen fermented organic soy drink. I first learned about it at an integrative cancer event years ago and I've been taking this myself for a long time. It's so potent and it has a strong flavor. So I add their organic mint powder to it and it's easy to take any time of day. I usually take it in the mornings. You know, I'm constantly looking into natural health products and the ones that catch my eye are the ones with years of proven results and the science and research to back them up. I love that Helin 951 checks all of these boxes. Made from a unique 100% organic soybean grown in the high mountains of Mongolia, Helin 951 has some incredible health properties. Just a few of the benefits are more energy, better sleep, detox, longevity, better immune function, and some fantastic anti-cancer compounds. 
The folks over at Helan have made a page just for our followers to learn more. You can head over to helan951.com forward slash crane. That's H-A-E-L-A-N 951.com forward slash crane. They have special discounted packages there for you to get you started. And if you use the promo code crane, C-R-A-N-E, at checkout, they will also give you free shipping. So head over and grab this special offer for yourself and use the free shipping promo code CRANE or just give them a call if that's easier for you. They are so easy to work with and have over 32 years in the industry. Again, that's helan951.com forward slash CRANE. You know, with the cold and flu season here, it's critically important that we enhance and strengthen our immune systems. Yes, would you agree? The problem is, though, that there's so much confusion out there when it comes to what actually works for our bodies and for our health. Well, I'll tell you what I used. I used Maison Beljansky's wellness products. Maison Beljansky's products are backed by science to not only help empower the immune system, but can support detoxification and contribute to our overall health. Coming from Europe, the all-natural Beljansky formulas are now available in the United States and are recommended by top doctors everywhere. A lot of the colleagues I work with, functional medicine practitioners that work with patients with all kinds of diseases, are recommending Maison Beljansky's products to their very own patients. As a special sponsor of this podcast, Maison Beljansky has included a very special discount offer for all of my listeners. You can get 15% off your first order using the promo code Nathan, and you'll always enjoy free shipping when you order four products or more. You can grab your wellness products today at MaisonBeljansky.com. That's M-A-I-S-O-N-B-E-L-J-A-N-S-K-I, MaisonBeljansky.com, and use code Nathan for 15% off. I ice bath a few days a week because I know what it's doing for my health and I don't feel good doing the ice bath, <laughs> but I feel good afterwards. You know, I exercise, I work out, I eat a nutrient-dense plant-based diet, I do qigong and meditation because I know what they're doing for my health and I know how it makes me feel, right? And so the more you do these things, the better you feel and the more it becomes a lifestyle instead of a chore. The less you eat potato chips and the more you eat some, some cooked veggies, the better you feel, the better your digestion is, the less of those potato chips you want, right? So creating simple daily action steps that you can take each day that will continue to pull you forward towards your longer-term goals. Figure out what that is for you. Leave me comments, messages, questions if you, you know, want us to, to help you dig into any of that deeper would be happy to, and uh, maybe do a live Q&A with all of you. But enough about that. I'm excited for our guest today on the podcast, Pamela Chambers, who has a really inspiring story of her own journey of overcoming cancer. And um, I'm excited for her to be on here with us and share with us what she went through and where she's at now and how she's helping people today. And uh, I'm really, really looking forward to this empowering conversation. So Pamela, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me, Nathan. I am honored to be here. I know all that you have done and given so much information to people as far as natural approaches and how to approach mind-body medicine with cancer treatments. So that's one of my specialties. So you were diagnosed 
with cancer when you were 20. Is that right? Yes, it was in 1980. What, so was, the, what was the diagnosis and what was the prognosis? Um, it was microinvasive cancer. And so it was back in the day where there weren't many women at all in gynecology. And the men were the ones primarily doing obstetrics and gynecology work. So when I was diagnosed, I was pregnant. I was four months pregnant at the time. And the doctor told me that he wanted to abort the baby and he wanted to remove all my, do a radical hysterectomy. Wow. Because he said when I was pregnant that the hormones actually proliferate the cancer. So um, I said, no, I wanna think about all of this. So I took my time and I thought, I just don't wanna do it. So I decided against it. And what was difficult in this process was they were, the doctor was sort of sending me around to different doctors and I'm not sure why. And the questionnaires that they had for me seemed very, you know, like, when did you first have sex? How many sexual partners did you have? In some ways I started to feel like, oh my God, I created this. You know, right. they were very invasive as far as my sexual practices that that somehow created cervical cancer. So I was a little confused and the doctors they sent me to didn't know how to do exams. I had one doctor, they said, I don't know why they sent you there. He's a skin doctor. So I had a painful exam and it was just a very exhausting, humiliating, degrading experience. Mm. So um, I just said, I don't want to do this. I want to take my chances. So what they said is they could do a cone biopsy. And when they did the cone biopsy, they said that we'll just continue to watch you since you won't go through the procedure, you know, the radical procedure, that's what we'll do. But they did let me know that the cone biopsy could maybe spark a, you know, contractions and perhaps I could lose the baby if that were to happen. But I did choose to do the cone biopsy instead of the radical hysterectomy. So at that time, so this was did you say 1980 was when you were diagnosed? Yeah. So at that time, did you have any experience at all in, let's just say natural health or what, what kind of confidence did you have in your own body or what was it in your decision-making process that said, you know what, I don't, I don't want to do that. Well, I think it would be a strong intuition. I don't know what it was, but it was just, you know, it's, it's a cancer spot on my cervix. And I thought if I have the baby, it's going to come back on my cervix and then they could, you know, treat it then. But they did say that the hormones of the pregnancy would proliferate the cancer and they did say it was invasive. So that's what their concerns were. And I think too, I, they did the ultrasound and I saw the baby and I couldn't do it. You know, I just saw the baby looking at me with these eyes and I thought, well, I just can't do it. I'm going to take my chances. So that was kind of what propelled me forward. But then after that, the best thing that happened to me, I don't know if you're younger, but I saw Phil Donahue on TV mm -hmm. and he introduced me to uh, Dr. Robert S. Mendelson, mm -hmm. who wrote the book Medical Heretic. And also he wrote the book Male, um, uh, Male Practice, but the E was shaded. So it was kind of like malpractice, <laughs> male practice, you know, but how the men treat you when you go in for treatment and things like that. And then I started reading it and I'm like, oh my God, that happened to me. I know exactly what he's talking about. When I was in session with the doctor, 
I asked the doctor a question and I said, well, I don't want to do this. And he goes, he goes, well, what medical school did you go to? You know, just the fact that I didn't agree with his treatment. Right. Anyway, it was that condescending approach that was really difficult. I mean, as a father of two, I can definitely understand that, that desire to not want to abort a child, like no matter what, you know, what, when you see, like when my daughter, when I first saw the ultrasound of my daughter and you see that there's an actual living human being that, you know, you were part of creating in my wife's womb and you could see the child. And it's just like that first ultrasound is so profound and knowing that that baby's there and alive and, you know, you're going to do whatever you can to help guide and support that baby coming into the world as a healthy human being. You know, the idea of aborting that baby is just so, um, I, I could totally imagine how you thought, you know what, it's more important that I bring this baby into the world than, you know, um, than my own health at the moment, uh, which is very, I don't know if everyone could feel that way. I don't think everyone could. So I think you definitely had a high level of compassion at that time, probably a high level of emotional intelligence for a 20 year old. Uh, which is pretty, pretty commendable to think about. Yeah, it was, it was very moving, the ultrasound. And I certainly don't, you know, want to make a choice for anybody else. It's such a personal choice that you have to make. And that's where I think mind-body medicine comes in place too. If you believe in it, it's more apt to be successful, whatever your belief is. And I think that's a real important piece of it. And for me, like you said, when you see those pictures in the ultrasound, it's just, and I still, to this day, it's so vivid in my brain. I can still see those baby's eyes looking like right at me. <laughs> you know, it was, uh, yeah. it was quite profound. And I just thought I'm taking my chances. And I think when we believe in something, I believed it was the right decision for me. I think it's most likely to turn out good. And it did turn out well. Yes, yeah, that's beautiful. So so you had your baby and so you said it turned out well. So yeah, talk a little bit about that. And, and then what happened with your cancer over time? Well, what, over time, what happened was, is after I, first of all, I went to the, the doctor uh, suggested that I go to this particular doctor um, when I left treatment at the clinic there. So I went to this particular doctor and he delivered the baby and at first they were saying that I needed to have a uh, C-section because they wouldn't want the baby going through the cancer cervix or something like that, which didn't make any sense to me. Is it like catchy or what is it? <laughs> I'm not sure. But anyway, so he did deliver the baby and it was an awful delivery. It was painful. I felt like the doctor didn't know what he was doing. Um, it wasn't a good experience, but she was born healthy and happy, so forth and so on. And then afterwards, I was discouraged with the medical community. I was just upset because of my treatment uh, during the cancer diagnosis and then my treatment with this delivery of the baby. I said, there's got to be a better way. So lo and behold, again, that's when I saw on Phil Donahue, the Dr. Robert S. Mendelson talking about his new book. And so I actually went to go visit with him. Oh, one more thing. After I delivered the baby, I got a letter from that doctor saying that we still recommend that you get a full radical hysterectomy after the delivery of the baby. Well, that didn't make any sense to me. It's like the baby's here. And so I heard Dr. Mendelssohn 
on this program, Phil Donahue. I actually booked an appointment to go see him. So I went to go see him and I said, hey, this is what they're recommending. And he said, that is ludicrous. He said that if cancer shows up again, it'll be on your cervix. He said, you can treat it then and that will be that. But he was the only doctor that also mentioned, you know, you gotta watch what you're eating. You gotta watch your stress. He brought things that no other doctor had said to me. And I was in the era where nobody really questioned doctors. And I know my mom and dad would never have dreamed to do what I did. And they were upset with me doing what I was doing. So anyway, after reading Dr. Mendelssohn's book, I felt even more confident that I was doing the right thing. And so that kind of propelled me forward. And that started the whole holistic movement for me. Mm. That's powerful to have, you know, a mentor, a guide, a doctor who listens to you, who understands you, who's compassionate, who gives you some sound advice that makes logical sense, right? You brought up something I think so important that I've encountered uh, for over a decade in talking to cancer patients and, and functional medical doctors that we have this weird underlying subconscious Hey, I just want to take a quick second and thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you're enjoying it so far. As a special thank you for tuning into this episode, I want to give you my number one Amazon best-selling book absolutely free. You can go download it right now at becomingcancerfree.com. If you want to learn evidence-based strategies for helping your body become a cancer-fighting machine for not only cancer reversal but cancer prevention, go grab a copy of the book. Again, I'm just giving it to you for free. You can go download it at becomingcancerfree.com. All right, let's get back to the show. It's not really a belief. It's like a pre-programmed idea that I think most people aren't fully aware of until you bring it up. And when I bring this up, people very often go, oh, I never thought about that. But actually, I can see that, how it makes sense. Where in the 1980s, the doctors were kind of treating you as if cancer was contagious, right? How many sexual partners have you had, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, they, they may have been getting information to try and find out other information as well. Did you have other diseases or whatever? But anyway, then, you know, the, oh, we don't want the baby going through and, and touching the cancer as it's, you know, uh, or touching the tumor as it's leaving your body. Like there's just so many, even today, there's this weird underlying idea subconscious or unconscious idea that cancer is something you catch it's not something you make and we treat it that way as a society oh she got cancer he got cancer right it's this thing that you get it's not something that you make and the truth is it is something that we make you know a good friend of mine dr thomas Lodi, is a functional medical doctor treats cancer patients every day and you know he teaches patients how to stop making cancer because our bodies are making it every single day and when it turns into a diagnosis it's because it has grown out of control due to the environment in which the cells are exposed to in our bodies and so we're making cancer we're not catching it we're not getting it it's not contagious you can touch a tumor you're not going to get cancer from somebody else having cancer and we know that consciously when you say it but yet people still treat it as if it's something they got. It was bad luck. You just got it. It runs in you. You got it from your parents. You got it from your grandparents, which we know also isn't true because most cancer is not hereditary. 
and through the science of epigenetics, we also know that we can turn off cancer genes. Even if you have the BRCA1 gene, for example, doesn't mean you're going to have breast cancer. These women that are being uh, told to chop off their breasts to prevent getting breast cancer when they're healthy and they have a BRCA1 gene, but they're told, let's chop off your breasts and take out your uterus just because you got the gene. I mean, these women are being mutilated and not being told that, look, even if you do nothing, you have a 50% chance of not getting cancer by having the gene. But if you actually implement good, healthy epigenetic diet and lifestyle choices, you can reduce that risk drastically. And even if you get a breast cancer when you're 60 or 70, a tumor, you know, it's not, uh, in many cases, it's not debilitating and you can still live a normal, healthy life. This is information that people need to know. Somehow you intuitively kind of knew this. I think, you know, I don't know if you you believe in God or higher power or, you know, divine, um, divine, you know, energy that's guiding you, but I do. And I believe that when we have that intuition, that intuition is coming from a higher intelligence that's telling us what we already know or what we need to know in that moment. And the fact it's like you already knew all this intuitively and made the right decisions, it sounds like, which is which is pretty incredible. Yeah, it was intuitive, you know, and like you were saying, it's not the genes necessarily that create cancer. It's the environment around the genes that can create the cancer. And so, you know, with speaking after speaking to Dr. Mendelssohn, he was the first one to point that out to me in the fact of, well, what are you eating? You know, stay away from the white flowers, the white pastas, the sugar, all those other things. So when I had my children, you know, they weren't drinking sodas. They weren't, you know, I already put them on a more healthy led diet. I became more conscious of my workouts. I became more conscious of my healthy lifestyle. And also I became a voracious reader, similar to you, as far as cancer and all the stories out there. So I became very informed as far as, you know, yoga practice, how healthy that is. I'm a big yoga fan. So all these things I started to incorporate in my life. And I thank Dr. Mendelssohn for that. And when I heard he died, I mean, I cried. <laughs> I'm like, why did he die? <laughs> but anyway. He was, was almost very- he was almost 90 when he died, though, wasn't he? Was he 88 yeah, he or was something? A bit older. And so I do. Li- you know, I think he lived a pretty good long. I mean, more, you know, 18 years more than the average, I think. So. Yeah, when I called, I spoke to his wife because I wanted to see him again. And she said, well, he had passed away. And I said, well, what happened? And she goes, well, he had been sick for a long time. She wasn't specific. And I was kind of, you know, wanted to know, well, what actually did happen? You know, did he have cancer? And did he just kind of go about fighting it himself, letting his body fight it, you know, instead of all the treatments that maybe somebody, a doctor may have recommended? But yeah. Well, actually, it looks like he died when he was 82. Um, He had a glioblastoma, right? Yeah, that's the brain, right? Mm -hmm. That's brain cancer, yep. Yeah. So I don't know how long he lived with it. I don't know either. You know, I could look into it, but I think that's an important point that that, um, people should understand is that, you know, not all cancer is terminal and not all cancer is debilitating and not all cancer is painful and not all cancer even has identifiable symptoms. You know, yeah, if you have a giant tumor uh, protruding, you know, out of your intestines or 
hitting your spine or on your joints. You know, there are times when cancer is painful for sure. Bone cancer can be very painful. There's time, you know, pressing against your, um, your brainstem or, you know, where like surgery could save somebody's life. Like that's, I don't ever want anyone to think, you know, I'm a huge, number one, I'm a huge proponent of natural medicine, holistic medicine first, but I don't want anyone to think that I'm completely against conventional medicine because there is times when it can save somebody's life. But like in your case, when you learn more about what's causing the cancer, where did it come from? How is our body making it? And then give your body a chance to actually fight the cancer using natural and holistic methods without poisoning and destroying your body, then you can actually see what's possible. And so there are many people who live decades with cancers and actually, number one, don't even know it. And number two, uh, doesn't debilitate their life until much later in their years. That doesn't mean don't do anything, of course, like do everything you can. And but exactly. educate yourself, educate yourself first about all the options. That's what I encourage people to do. I agree wholeheartedly with you. I have an interesting uh, story. Um, I, my new book has been the, the Psychic Roots of Illnesses, and it helps, I think, reduce the fear of cancer. And in this book, it talks about how if you look at, like, let's say you break a bone, right? And when you break that bone, the cells around it, it's healing the bone, correct? And those cells are very similar to what cancer cells look like. They have a large nuclei, and they're also uh, fast uh, replicating, but they're very similar. So, for example, the author of this book was a doctor, and his son was murdered. Well, I think it was maybe two years later, he developed testicular cancer. And he thought, God, did this have anything to do with the death of my son? So he went to this hospital where there were several cancer patients and he started doing interviews. And he realized that a lot of these people had trauma, losing a child, a mother, father, whatever, and other sorts of trauma, and then developed cancer later. So what he real, or this is his hypothesis and conclusion, was that his body was naturally trying to get healing the wound of the loss of his son by um, proliferating cells in his testicles to quickly produce another offspring right? because of the loss. So this was his hypothesis. And now when my clients, I've had a couple of clients, I've started to see a, a mother or a daughter lost her mother. It's been a year and a half. Now she has breast cancer. And I think what this is, it, do, it doesn't make cancer cells seem so scary. It's like, the, it's just your body trying to help you. Your yeah. body's trying to help you have another baby or um, these kinds of things if you've lost a child. So for me, it, it, it's a lot less fearful when you get cancer. And it also makes you feel like, well, I can fix this. Let's resolve some of the grief that I've been through. Let's get a support group. All of these are beneficial and help healing the wound that you've just encountered. Hey, I just want to pause a second and ask you, are you enjoying this episode so far? Are you getting good value from this content? If so, then I know you're going to absolutely love Healing Life. At healinglife.net, you get exclusive and premier access to hundreds of the top world's doctors, experts, cancer conquerors, and survivors. Exclusive interviews that I have done with all these experts and doctors, uh, that are not available for free online. They're only available at healinglife.net. So not only do you get access to all of those, but you actually get to speak with 
these doctors and experts and ask them any question you want about health and healing. And this is available exclusively to Healing Life members. You can try it out for free. Go to healinglife.net and you can start your free trial there. And uh, whether you're interested in learning more about detox or cancer, diet and nutrition and nutritional science, about diabetes, about heart disease, autoimmune disease, anti-aging, longevity, all of these topics are covered in depth and more are continuing to be added at Healing Life. And again, you get to talk to these doctors yourself. So I invite you to set up a free trial at healinglife.net, and I hope to see you over there. Now, let's get back to the show. Yeah, that's so powerful. Um, and that story, for people who don't know, that you're sharing of the doctor and his son uh, being killed, that's Dr. Reich Geard Hammer. Uh, from Germany, and that medicine is called German New Medicine, and I've studied it extensively, and I've actually talked to German doctors who have studied extensively and implemented it with their patients, and so there's a lot of case studies that uh, what he discovered is true, where you resolve the emotional trauma of the loss of a loved one or, or emotional trauma in your own life, something that happened to you or to someone close to you, and the cancer goes away. There are also uh, numerous case studies where somebody does that and the cancer doesn't go away and they don't do anything else about it and then the cancer takes over their whole body and kills them. So, you know, because part of that, the end point of that um, German New Medicine is the part that people, I think, have to be careful of because part of it is as the cancer continues to grow, let's say you have a tumor. I saw a picture of a woman with a breast tumor that just spread all over her whole body, the tumor and the flesh. And it was, you know, it just continued. And part of that practice, part of that uh, theory is this is necessary in the healing because before things get better, they have to get worse. Well, by the time that that got so worse and she didn't do any surgery or anything that could have helped reduce that cancer from spreading so profoundly i mean this woman's dead now i mean there's no there's just nothing anybody could do for her at that point and so i think people i think it can be taken too far i think german new medicine can be taken too far i'm certainly not the expert in it but i've talked to experts in it uh doctors who work with cancer patients every single day and i do think also there is a tremendous amount of validity in German New Medicine as well, specifically in the emotional healing aspect. And we know this through many other studies and research as well, that when we have a trauma, childhood adverse mm -hmm. event, the loss of a loved one, addiction, a family member in jail, um, any kind of trauma in childhood or adult that we don't know how to fully process, it gets stored energetically in the body. Our Nervous systems produces neuropeptides. They can get stuck in various organs and lead to chronic inflammation. That chronic inflammation is one of the known causes of cancer. And so if you have chronic inflammation, you know, in an organ or a part of your body for 20 or 30 years, it's damaging to cells and the mitochondria leading to cancer because we haven't resolved that emotion. We know through the studies of Kaiser Permanente in the 90s that three or more childhood adverse events that you've had, any of these traumas in your life, your life is shortened by 20 years and your risk of cancer and other chronic diseases go up substantially if we don't resolve these things. So I love that, you know, you've been researching this and focusing this on, on for yourself and for your, for the people you're helping in the book you're writing, because 
I did a whole documentary series on this called The Missing Link, which is all about that underlying cause of pretty much all disease, which is getting to the root cause of our emotional health and well-being. And if we resolve that and we find peace and contentment and joy and happiness and fulfillment and generosity in our lives, then very often, more often than not, and there are many, many, many case studies on this, the body gets into a parasympathetic nervous system state where it can do what it's designed to do and heal itself. And, you know, I think it's such such a valuable thing. It's not easy, but it's important. It is. And one of the tools I use is EMDR. Yeah, beautiful. It's a very effective tool in helping trauma. Talk about what EMDR is for a moment, please. I would love to, because it's very powerful and I've seen it work very well in my office. EMDR is a tool. If you've heard of REM sleep, REM sleep is rapid eye movement. So when we're dreaming, our eyes are darting back and forth quickly underneath our eyelids. And what that does is it helps us process traumatic events. And so, because dreaming, they say, is our subconscious mind, right? Kind of going to work. So EMDR forces the bilateral stimulation of the brain, which is either by having them follow our fingers, which is, you know, the EMDR process, or you can do tapping you know, tapping the knees one by one. That's another method to be able to do bilateral stimulation in the brain. So both sides of the brain can communicate with each other. Because what happens during trauma, sometimes thoughts and ideas get stuck in our brain and we don't know what those are. Okay, the event is over. But the only thing that bothers us is the thoughts linked to the events. But what are those thoughts, right? Sometimes they're buried underneath there. So EMDR relaxes you while both hemispheres of the brain communicate with each other. Well, when she came in to see me, she said, I don't know what happened. You know, my kids are doing great. She said, I'm a mess. I can't sleep. I can't eat. I don't know what's going on. Well, during the EMDR, what we uncovered, which she didn't realize was in there, she felt badly that she didn't give her four-year-old any attention. He was hurt, but the two-year-old was hurt badly. And so we rushed him off. So she had to satisfy that guilt she felt by speaking to her four-year-old son. But she didn't know that thought was in there unless through the EMDR. Mm. Yeah, that's powerful. I've talked with a number of cancer conquerors, people who've overcome cancer like yourself using more natural holistic approaches who have also sworn by EMDR as as a really powerful emotional healing aspect of their healing journey. Um, so I know it's, uh, it's, it's a powerful tool and pretty accessible, you know, anywhere most people are. It is. They have a whole EMDR network, you know, where people can get online, emdr.com, emdr.org, and you can find people who work with EMDR in your area. So it's very accessible, like you said, yes. So you were diagnosed when you were 20, is 1980. You decided not to follow the conventional uh, approach of radical hysterectomy and, and surgery and so forth. Um, you said you changed your diet. You started focusing on other areas of your life. Um, two questions. First part is how long before you were diagnosed basically cancer free? How many years or what year was that? And then number two, Go into depth into some of the things that you did for yourself during that period. 
Well, let's see, I was diagnosed. So the five-year mark is the one they lead you to, right? With the, after diagnosis of cancer, they say after five years, all your cells have reproduced. And so you're, you know, they deem you cancer free after five years. Well, they so call you a cancer, the five-year term is basically, they call you a cancer survivor. So anyone who's called a cancer survivor, whether you still have cancer or not, as long as you've lived past the five-year mark of diagnosis, you're called a cancer survivor. Even if your cancer is still growing, you're considered a cancer survivor. Um, I really think they came up with that term is my belief. I don't have evidence for it. I really think they came up with that term because of the so-called war on cancer from Reagan, you know, that's been going for 50 plus years, has yielded very, very, very poor results for cancer. And we're still seeing cancer skyrocketing and we're still seeing um you know people suffering from cancer tremendously even while following the best conventional advice again this is my belief i think they came up with the five-year survival rate to make people feel like hey you're doing a good job if you survive five years with cancer you're a cancer survivor you made it doesn't matter quality of life doesn't matter if you do chemotherapy and radiation your immune system's wrecked now you have autoimmune disease and leaky gut and chronic fatigue and joint pain none of those things matter which I think is wrong. I think we should look at quality of life as well as extension of life. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode. I want to take a quick second and let you know about something really special I recently updated. I think uh, you might benefit greatly from something I think you might enjoy and want to take a look at. And it is my book called The Panacea Cleanse. It's a powerful 12-day plant-based detoxification and healing guide it's already hit number one in four categories on amazon there's thousands of people that have done this cleanse and i've read so many testimonials from it let me read you one really quick aaron said i did the panacea cleanse and followed your instructions closely i had amazing results i stayed healthy while everyone around me my kids and family were getting very ill from a virus i also lost some weight and my menstrual cycles are much less painful i also don't have bad headaches anymore Thanks for the information you put out. She's just one of thousands who have gained tremendous benefit from this cleanse. If you want to improve the quality of your life and your health, clean out your organs, clean out your digestive tract, help lose weight and burn fat, and basically give you more energy, help you feel alive, go check out the Panacea Cleanse, P-A-N-A-C-E-A, -A -A, the Panacea Cleanse on Amazon. It's like 12 bucks or something like that. And you can follow it day by day. It's got a recipe list. It's got a shopping list. It's got everything you need in there to follow this powerful cleanse. It took me about two years to create it. My wife and I have done it multiple times. It's been amazing in our own lives and I'm happy to share it with you. So uh, go check it out. If you're interested, the Panacea Cleanse, it's on Amazon. Thanks. And let's get back to the show. But, um, you know, what I consider is probably more important is what's your quality of life in addition to the years that you've lived if you live two more years but your quality of life improved and you had a great two more years you know that's that's a win in some cases in your case this is 44 years later and you're still alive and healthy and helping people which is a mega mega win obviously um so you're not a you know cancer survivor really you're a cancer conqueror in my mind um but yeah, I just want to clarify that for people because there's kind of a misconception out there about it. There really is. And, you know, someone's, 
you get to that five year mark, you feel kind of like, shoot, you know, I did it. But I did go on and still a voracious reader as far as I, I became a counselor, I became a life coach, and I work with cancer patients. I worked with a nonprofit group called Run Gals Run, and I did workshops on them or for them with mind body medicine. And I've continued on my own healthy journey as far as the right foods, you know, the, the pillars of our destiny, right? Eat right, um, renew right, um, drink well. Uh, let's see, there's a couple more, but you know, those, those, uh, just taking care of yourself is so vital to feeling alive and also to quality of life is extremely important to me. And I love conventional medicine. Like you said, you go in with uh, bleeding profusely, you want conventional medicine. You go in and you have a broken bone. I'm going to the doctor quickly. They just don't understand the chronic illnesses that well. I don't think they're taught well in school. The pharmaceutical industry runs them. And, you know, doctors, they even create in that book, you know, the psychic roots of illness. They had said that the language that they use keeps that elitist language. Instead of arthritis, they could just say joint inflammation, right? And then the client might ask, well, what causes our inflammation of joints? But if it's just arthritis, it's a little more skeptical. So you don't question it as much. And then he'll treat it with maybe pharmaceuticals or something along that line. So the chronic illnesses, they haven't had a lot of uh, insight to, I feel personally, but the other areas, they're terrific. Yeah, absolutely. So when did you have any follow-up scans and things like that? And where's your, I mean, are you no evidence of disease today? Is there still a little tumor there? What, you know, when did you discover? No your... evidence of disease at all. Mm -hmm. um, I did have a hysterectomy due to the thickening of the lining of my uterus, which was a few years ago. It was interesting to me because at the time when I, great conventional medicine was there, <laughs> I needed it. <laughs> you know, they were terrific. So I did have it removed a couple years ago. And while they, I was. Um, did they find any cancer at that time? Um, no. Wow. Yeah. So no, it was just an enlarged uterus. So what they did do is um, they, uh, uh, when I was in the emergency room, oh, afterwards, ap two weeks afterwards, I started bleeding, okay? So it was kind of like a hemorrhaging. So I went to the doctor, this obscure sort of, it looked like a very poor hospital, but I couldn't have had better treatment. You know, they had, you know, a lot of homeless people were in the lobby and there were a lot of, you know, maybe some drug addicts. It was a wonderful, wonderful experience. And <laughs> I couldn't have had nicer people and they just treated me beautifully. And I ended up doing well afterwards. Well, they did the CT scan, right? Where they run the, the blue ink through your veins to see maybe where the bleeding was coming from. But it was obvious it was from the hysterectomy that I had had where the bleeding was coming from. So what they did is uh, the gynecologist there discovered that there was something, the stitches had come loose from a vein. But when they did the CT scan, they noticed a small nodule in my lung, right? A, they called it a small nodule, nodule on the outside of the lung. So afterwards, I went to go see the lung specialist. And he said, well, I really don't want to do a, um, 
a biopsy because he felt that that would be too risky. He didn't think it was that much of a big deal. And then he said, but I want to have you do this blood test and they're going to come to your house to do it. And they're going to look at all these markers to see the possibility of that turning into cancer, what could happen. And all of a sudden I started to feel the tentacles of the medical community starting to come around me. I mean, if you look hard enough, you can find a lot of stuff, you know? And I thought, what kind of test is this? I thought he was doing his own research, which he could have been, I don't know. But it just didn't seem right to me. And I says, nah, I'll opt out of it. Mm. <laughs> opt out of it. So I didn't want to do it. And then in reading that book, uh, you know, The Psychic Roots of Illness, he said that when you fear death, the first thing to show up is a nodule on your lung. It's like your body's trying to get more air. It feels like it's going to die. So I was wondering, could it happen that fast? Mm. You know, I thought it would die by bleeding. I don't know how quickly things like that can happen, but who knows? Anyway, and a couple years later, no, uh, I ended up going in for, I had chest pains and I thought, oh God, maybe I'm having a heart attack. <laughs> so I went in and they did do a chest scan and there was nothing on my chest x-ray. So no nodule, nothing. So Wow. So it came and then it went. You know, yeah. I think that's, that's such a good point that we live in society today where we're conditioned to run to the doctor to the hospital every time we got a little anything and i i know of so many people and have heard of so many people who every time their kids sick they got cold flu whatever run them to the hospital or run them to the, the family doctor and you know i obviously as a parent you want to take care of your kids the best that you can but that's what happened to me i mean you know my mom obviously loved me and wanted to take care of me. So every time I was sick as a kid, go to the doctor, doctor checks it out. Oh, strep throat, this, whatever, antibiotics, put them on antibiotics, take those for a week, 10 days till they're gone. And then you're fine. Nobody told us anything about diet and nutrition, about, you know, enhancing my immune system, about good sleep, you know, about anything. And so I was sick all the time as a kid. I was Every time I'm sick, go to the family doctor, get the meds, go home, take the meds, and that's the solution. It wasn't until I was, you know, 18, 19, 20, and I changed my life and really started focusing on health and research and learning how to take care of my body that I just made that decision right there. No more pharmaceuticals, pain meds, not even an ibuprofen, and have not touched any of that since. I actually ruptured my AC joint probably 12, 15 years ago, playing basketball, went in, they gave me a sling and, a, and, a, um, and some hydrocodone. And I was in so much pain and I hadn't taken anything for whatever it was, seven, eight, 10 years by that point, not even an ibuprofen, nothing. And I took one hydrocodone. I got so sick from it, nauseous. I just threw away the whole prescription and that was it. And I just dealt with the pain. And you know, there are some life-saving medications. I want to put that out there. But for most things that people experience today, a cold, a flu, a sinus infection, an earache, we, nature has everything we need. My kids get an earache, put some garlic and molin oil in there. It's gone in like 24 hours. You know, they uh, start getting sick or there's a lot of stuff going around at school, they start getting cough, whatever. We just double up on the vitamin C, add in some, some, uh, some zinc, some additional um 
uh, echinacea and garlic and other natural antivirals, antibacterials, and add in the sauna and all of a sudden, boom, you're good to go, you know, in a few days. It's like we have to re-educate ourselves and our children and our future generations that health is within ourselves and health is within ourselves and health is within our mind as you're talking about so much of disease is actually directly related to stress and stress comes from the mind stress comes from worrying about the past and thinking about the fear of the future something that's never happened yet and something that happened long ago until we learn to live in the present moment and learn to love ourselves and learn to practice being peaceful in stressful situations which is one reason i love the ice bath by the way is because you get into a stressful situation and you control your autonomic nervous system through your breathing you learn to be peaceful in a really stressful environment until we learn how to do that as a society we're just going to see these disease diseases continue to skyrocket which is not good for anybody except big business you know except big pharma big hospitals you know big government it's great for them they they make a lot of money when we're sick but if we want to be healthy and take care of ourselves, we've got to learn this stuff and implement it and share it with our children. You are so right. I mean, pain is, a lot of times pain is stuck energy, right? And that's why massage and yoga is so beneficial. It's stuck energy. But like you said, we're not going to die from pain. We can get through it. It won't kill us but we will get through it. It may not be easy. What do they say when you're walking through hell? Just keep walking. But anyway, we will get through it. Pain doesn't kill. But like Deepak Chopra, who's a spiritual guru, I call him. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but... I am familiar with him, yeah. Uh, he, um, he said, the best pharmacy we have is right here. Inside our body is the best pharmacy we have. And I think he's right. I mean, think you've heard people during stressful situations being able to lift cars off of people. And I mean, how can they do that? When I got in, I was in a plane crash. When I got in a plane crash, I don't remember feeling pain. You know, the bodies, and I wasn't, it took a while before people came to me to rescue me. I don't remember the pain. You know, I don't, I didn't. So my body must have somehow was able to keep that from me. So anyway. Wait, so what happened? Tell me about this plane crash. That's crazy. I think, I don't know if I've ever met anybody who survived a plane crash, or maybe, maybe you're the second person I've talked to. I can't, it's like I have a faint memory of somebody. I may have watched them or talked to them, but uh, I'm really, really interested. Tell me about this plane crash. Well, I was 35 years old at the time, and I was, there were, there were three people in the plane, and I was the only survivor. And they were somewhat goofing off. They were flying low, which is against FAA regulations, correct? We had friends on the ground and they were buzzing friends, so to speak, down on the ground, which is illegal. That's not good, which I didn't know. And anyway, we clipped the wires, the electrical mm. wires. That's not supposed to fly low. So with that, the plane came tumbling down. Holy and God. there were people were watching it and when they saw me, they said I was upside, hanging upside down with the seatbelt still around my waist and the blood was profusely coming down. You know, whenever you have head wounds, they bleed a lot. And I was choking on my blood as I was hanging upside down, but they were able to kind of save me by lifting my head up and giving me 
you know, airways to breathe because I was gasping for air, so to speak. And the rescue crew, crew arrived. People asked me, well, what do you remember? Now, I don't remember the crash. They said, I went to a neuropsychologist and he said it would take, it takes seven seconds for your brain to take something in to store it in short-term memory. So I had a concussion. So I imagine that took any, he said, I'll never remember. He said that you never put it into short-term memory. That's what he told me. But my fiance died in that crash. Mm. And afterwards, the recovery, emotional recovery was brutal. The physical, not so bad because I was in pretty good shape when it happened. And the doctor told me when I came in to the emergency room, he said I had sign of paralysis because there were a bunch of the, the spinal cord or the spinal bones smooshed, crushed, and the fragments shot back into the spinal fluid. Wow. Fragments. So he said they were touch and go as far as um, paralysis, but he did say that he felt my muscles in my back supported my back when the bones smooshed. So I don't know if that's true, but that was his suspicion is why the spinal cord didn't snap. Wow. But another reason to stay in good shape because I was a weightlifter at that time. I still am a weightlifter, but anyway. Do, do you have any long-term uh, complications, damages from that? Actually, no, I don't. And I think one of, well, obviously, yes, I have a little more pain in my back maybe than the average person. I'm not sure. But I, I suffered quite a few injuries, you know, broken bones, compound fractures, concussion, and so forth and so on. But the beauty of it was that they had just developed the technology where you take, you don't give them those casts and leave them on you. You give them the casts and they remove them and start you right away exercising, right? So I had broken both my ankles. So what they did is they removed the casts and started working on them. And also I had a cast around my waist, which they were able to take that off and make me work exercises. So I started working out right away and it was the only thing too that saved my emotional health because I was stuck in my bed for, until somebody would come to put my braces back on. I couldn't get up. So anyway, it was a rough road of recovery. And when I realized emotional is much harder to recover from than physical pain. So that's, that's a really inc incredible point uh, I wanna point out is the fact that you were a weightlifter and the doctor believed because your muscles in your back were strong, it actually prevented you from becoming paralyzed. And there are, there's a lot of evidence that supports that with fractures and broken bones, especially as people age their seventies and eighties and nineties, that when you do resistance training and weight training, it's that pressure, it's that resistance and pressure, on the bones and on the musculoskeletal system that actually determines whether you're going to die from literally just a fall falling and breaking a hip or you're going to live and and be strong and recover from that is yeah. how much muscle you have and how dense your bones are and bone density actually has a lot more to do with resistance to the musculoskeletal system like weight training or if somebody lives in Sardinia, Italy, in a blue zone, for example, and they walk miles and miles a day and they carry buckets of water or 
you know, bags of food, for example, up and down hills. They're putting weight on their bodies. They're carrying stones for their gardens and different things. They're constantly carrying things and putting that positive stress, that hormetic stressor on the body. These people are not dying from broken hips and falling and, and breaking uh, bones and things like that. They're actually living 80, 90, 100 years plus because they do some form of resistance training consciously or unconsciously, you know, just because their life demands it or you're actually going to the gym and strengthening your body. So as you age, it's essential, as you know, but a lot of people don't. Uh, as you age, it's really, really essential that we do resistance training. You don't have to be lifting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds of weight in your 60s or 70s or 80s. It's not essential. What is essential is that you put that resistance load, the load-bearing weight on your musculoskeletal system, which is why squats, back squats, and front squats, this is why, you know, bench press and strict press, this is why anything that's using your uh, your entire structure to strengthen is so good for you, even if it's lightweight or even if it's just bands, you're just using rubber bands, but you're creating that resistance uh, is incredibly beneficial. It's shown to increase lifespan, decrease all-cause mortality, uh, increase bone density, increase you know, muscle, more muscle you have on your body, the more insulin sensitive you are, which means less likely you're going to have diabetes and other chronic diseases. So it's such an important point that you were, you know, taking care of yourself at 35 and, um, and survived that plane crash, which I think is a miracle, really. Yeah, it's, if you think of the journey too, here I was at 20 with cancer, right? Realize the importance of taking care of my health, yeah. which led me to making sure I incorporate workout in my daily life. I incorporate meditation. I incorporate yoga. I do all of these things. So this is where cancer can, can be a gift, right? It can open us up to new areas of taking care of ourselves and learning about how do we make our environment uh, husp or good for our gene pool, right? You know, we yeah. don't want to do bad genes. <laughs> we want to make sure we keep a nice uh, environment to ward off disease. Absolutely. So you said the emotional healing part was much harder than the physical for you. And, and why was that? Um, my fiance died in that crash. Yeah. So it was the loss of him. And then I also knew the other man who died in the crash. And it was just so tough because you i was stuck with all my thoughts i mean my the gym training and getting out for rehab was the thing that saved me but i didn't have a job i was in transition i didn't have a job i was by myself my kids were going off to college so it was kind of a stressful time but the emotional impact you know you thank god for visitors because i suffered a concussion i couldn't read i couldn't focus I couldn't watch TV and I couldn't move around for a distraction. So I was left with all these thoughts, you know, swirling around. How am I going to survive? What am I going to do with my life? <laughs> you know, I got to find a job. I, the first job I went to, I got hired on. The first job I went to, after two hours, I left in tears. I'm like, oh my God, is this my life now? <laughs> so anyway, it was just a really hard struggle to lose so much and not have anything tangible to hang on to. I didn't have a job to go to. My kids were 
leaving and in the busy parts of their lives. And so it felt pretty lonely, but I had some good friends and they saved me, my friends. What emotional practices did you implement at that time that you think really helped? You said your friends saved you, but were there other things that you were doing? Was EMDR, tapping, EFT? Were there other things that you felt really contributed to your uh, emotional healing? Actually, after I started to feel a little better, the best thing was I felt I was touched by some spiritual angels because I do believe in a higher power. And people came to me in, in different ways that helped me get through things. But also I started to study life after death and what happens and uh, the mediums. I love the mediums, Long Island mediums. <laughs> you know, these sort of things became very attractive to me. And I do believe that people can communicate to the dead. I ran into a psychic and the psychic uh, told me things that I don't know how she would have ever known. Like right. she realized that um, my fiance was alive for a while. She she knew the psychic knew that we were in a plane crash. She also knew that um, I had always been thinking that I had a really good friend in high school. And I thought if he's in heaven, he should not in heaven. I don't really believe in hell, but <laughs> in the higher universe, if he should meet my friend from high school, they would get along really well. Well, the psychic said, oh, he's with somebody in heaven and he has the same name as him. And that was true. I mean, how could you realize that? So wow. I thought that was cool. But some of the things that she shared with me, you just wouldn't know. Anyway, so I do believe it. It made my belief stronger in there's something after we die. You know, you, there's something to be said about near-death experiences, NDEs, when people share their near-death experience. You can read them in, in many books and many people have come out over the years and shared, you know, when they basically, when their body completely died and they mm -hmm. left in some of these case, cases, you know, they were in the hospital and this is documented proof that their, uh, their heart stopped and they were dead for two minutes, three minutes, five minutes, eight minutes in some cases. And their soul basically leaves their body and goes to, you know, the light and they experience, they talk about, they all talk about the same thing, right? They all talk about the same exact experience. Oh, I saw all the people that, um, that had already passed before my aunt, my grandma, my parents, etc. They were, I felt pure love and bliss. It was ecstasy. I felt like this was felt like this was heaven. It was pure light. I sensed there was God there, right? Every single person who shares their near-death experience has the same experience. And when they come back, they all shared the same thing as well, that I, uh, I was given a choice to stay there, which I wanted to because it was so beautiful and there was no pain and it was just the most amazing thing. But I knew I had X, Y, Z to do. I knew I had work to do on the planet. I knew I had to come back and help my child do this, right? They all have the same story of coming back to the earth to fulfill a destiny or a purpose that they weren't ready yet to, uh, to, to not fulfill. And, you know, one or two people sharing that story would be interesting. But when you have like hundreds and hundreds of people who have the exact same experience all over the world, different cultures, different beliefs, different religions, different theologies, and they all have the same experience. How can you deny that that is 
something miraculous beyond just this human physical experience. I too, like you, believe that there is a, you know, a, a universal heavenly experience beyond this life. I also don't believe there's like a physical hell that bad people go to and get condemned and burned for life because like, how could you have an all loving, all knowing, all compassionate, all caring God tell you, Oh, sorry, you didn't, you didn't live up to the muster. You weren't good enough. You made too many mistakes. I love you, but I'm going to send you to hell to burn and rot in flames and disease and die in pain. But I love you. You know, George Carlin does that bit. And it's the funniest thing I've ever seen. That's true. Like, how could you have that, you know, that love, pure love and send people to suffer? I just don't, I don't believe that either. I think we create our our hell on earth. I think that's what the Bible was speaking about. You see it every day. I lived in hell on earth as a teenager, pure, pure hell on earth. People in war are living in hell. People who are born in, you know, poverty stricken, disease stricken countries with no food and they're raped and molested and murdered. That is hell. We're creating hell on earth. But we also can create heaven. We can also create heaven on earth. And I do think there is something miraculous beyond this physical experience as well. Um, but it's not something that I think we should go chasing. You know, I think we should live our best lives here the best yeah. that we can with integrity and honesty and love and kindness and compassion to ourselves and to others. Try to create heaven here on earth. And then when we leave this body, we'll really see what the next dimension is all about. Exactly. We should be excited, not fearful of death. Yeah. We should be excited. Where will it take me? What will it do? One of the little, it, you reminded me of uh, one of the things that helped me move on as well. I say one of my spiritual angels that were there. Uh, my friend and I were talking about, we had gone to California and we were talking about this book that I had read and we got on a plane and there was this very exotic woman and I, we were sitting next to her and I, and she was reading that same book. And I'm like, oh my God, you're reading that book. What did you think? And she said, well, I always thought it was a little crazy because when I was younger, I, um, I could hear my dead, my dead father talking to me. And she goes, but then I read this book and I feel like, gosh, I'm not crazy. Maybe I have this gift. And she was talking about her husband that she divorced, that he was physically abusive. And she said, and then I realized what a gift he gave me. He gave me the courage to be able to stand on my own two feet and to get away from that. I mean, and her thought process was so unique. And then when I was sitting there, I said, well, I know who I want you to talk to. Will you talk to my fiance who who died? And she goes, well, you know what she said? I said, I know we learn stuff. When we go through a tragedy, the greatest gift is what can we learn from this tragedy? How can we grow from this tragedy? And she looked at me and she said, you know, she said, you're not going to grow until you let go. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> you mean you can't talk to him? You won't talk to him? You know, so anyway, I thought that was quite profound. And she, you know, it is true to some extent, because the definition of grief is to let go of. It doesn't mean you let go of memories, but you let go of the physical presence of the being in your life. And you have adapted to a new being in your life with that person in out of the physical realm but in another dimension yeah there's a spiritual practice in buddhism that i love very much that i think people misunderstand which is non-attachment and -hmm. people think of non-attachment as kind of callous oh i don't i don't love that person i'm not attached to them 
So if I have, if I'm not attached to them, I don't have the attachment to them. The mental, emotional attachment to somebody uh, means you don't love them. In fact, it's the opposite. The practice of non-attachment means that you have pure love for them. And the pure love for them, the true love for them means that you allow them to be themselves and you allow them to express themselves and you show them true non-attached love for themselves and for yourself. And it's the attachment that causes our own mental, emotional suffering. It's the attachment of that husband or the attachment of that experience. We're still attached to it. That person who did me wrong 20 years ago, that resentment you have for your parents who treated you poorly as a child or abused you, you know, the judgment that you have for your neighbor who smokes cigarettes and drinks alcohol, that's attachment. That's mental, emotional, energetic attachment to things that are primarily out of our control. And so we are literally causing our own suffering by being attached. And so the practice of non-attachment is actually is a practice of compassion. It's a practice of, of love. And it's a challenging practice for sure, but I think it's, it's worthwhile. The more that we can practice and cultivate that and realize, all right, something's happening over here with, with this person, my judgment towards them, my resentment, my feelings. And that's causing me suffering. So the awareness is my feelings towards that person or experience is causing my own suffering. And so what I need to do is detach myself from that experience and create a new perspective about the situation or the person. And oftentimes that leads us to realize we need to forgive, right? We need to forgive them for the wrongdoings. We need to forgive ourselves for our own wrongdoings. I've done a lot of bad shit in my life early on as a teenager, I didn't know what I didn't know. I had made a lot of mistakes, hurt a lot of people, hurt myself a lot. I had to forgive. And a lot of people hurt me. I had to forgive them. And I had to forgive myself. And if you don't ever learn to do that, you will have all of this continuous suffering, which is not happening to you. It's you doing it to yourself unknowingly. And on a bigger spiritual aspect, I would say it's happening for you. It's happening so you can wake up to a better, healthier, happier version of yourself. And it takes a major level of awareness to, to come to that, which requires, in my experience, meditation or spiritual practice. Because without meditation or spiritual practice, you never have the wherewithal and the ability to actually identify what's going on within yourself. And you just go through the motions, right? Experiencing this continuous pain and suffering, blaming everybody else for your problems, when realizing that you actually have control of how you feel and how you respond. So well said. I, I always say guilt, replace guilt with the wisdom. It's bringing things to consciousness. And the only way we do that is through stillness, typically, right? It's allowing our thoughts and to bubble up when we're quiet. You know, if you're sitting, if, if you throw a rock in a still lake, right? It has a ripple effect. Well, that's what meditation is. You ripple the energy out there. You're able to listen. If you throw that rock in a stormy sea, you won't even see where the rock landed. But it's the stillness that allows consciousness to come up. And we change our guilt into wisdom. You know, we can look back and say, oh, I feel guilty about that. Well, you weren't conscious then of what you were doing. So, you know, now that you're more conscientious of what you did, that you didn't like, well, then that's wisdom. 
So replace the guilt with wisdom. And our neurons are listening to our brain. Like you said, when you forgive, your neurons listen. And they're thinking, oh, phew. <laughs> you know, it's like if you ever told a lie, finally and come out with it. It's a huge sigh of relief. Same with the neurons. You know, when you said you forgive, your neurons are listening and your body is calm then. And that's when it can repair. And that's when it can heal. During calmness is when, you know, we heal. The parasympathetic is the nerve, you know, the nervous system that calms, rejuvenates, revitalizes you. Absolutely. I often share the story of Keisha Ewers told me in a conversation we had in an interview I had with her a few years back that she found out later when her son was grown up that she had hired a babysitter that had been molesting him. Oh. And she didn't know it when mm. he was a child. He, he told her once he was an adult. And can you imagine the shock and the trauma she must have felt? The oh. anger, the yeah. pain, yeah. the sadness, the self, uh, self-anger, self-loathing towards herself for not knowing for hiring this babysitter and towards the babysitter for molesting her child. Immediately within months, she grew a breast tumor. Oh, poor thing. And she is a uh, psychotherapist, I believe. She's a holistic practitioner. She's an incredible human being. Uh, and so she had the wherewithal to one, already recognize where this breast tumor come from, it came from my own anger, my own self-judgment, my own, you know, feelings and emotions. And so she went into her own uh, forgiveness practice, forgiveness towards the babysitter, forgiveness towards herself. Took her some time, but she told me that she was able to fully, fully forgive him and fully forgive herself. And within three months, the tumor was gone. Powerful. It's so, the mind is so powerful. Our emotions are so powerful. You know, that's one anecdote, but there are literally thousands of anecdotes like that all around the world that have been documented. Uh, Kelly Turner, Dr. Kelly Turner documented in Radical Remission, you know, 1,500 cancer cases where they put themselves into remission. These are cancer cases that our medical society, our medical conventional world called spontaneous remission. Oh, it just happened spontaneous. It was luck. It was chance, whatever. <laughs> and it's like, no, it was intentional remission. When you add in, you know, uh, cruciferous vegetables and whole foods and, and more healing natural plant foods into your diet and you exercise and you meditate and you do forgiveness and spiritual practices, um, you get more sunshine and vitamin D and you spend more time outside and you forgive the people that hurt you and you do all these things that they all had in common all around the world. Many of them had these same things in common and then their cancers of all different types go away. That's not spontaneous people. Come on. That's intentional. That's intentional that. remission. And that's what our modern uh, conventional system needs to study and understand. They won't. Cause as you and I know, it's all primarily funded and ran by big pharma. They don't, you know, that's not profitable, right? It's not profitable to, eat some plants and meditate, you know, it's not probable for any big company, but it works. People heal yeah. all the time. And that's, that's what people need to know. 
Well, it's and the placebo effect. The placebo is one of the most powerful things that, but we don't study it. How come it works, right? Yeah, the placebo can work. Absolutely. I didn't even know I, during my uh, naturopathic, uh, one of my training sessions, I didn't realize that allergies are related to our emotions. So when I found that out, I'm like, you mean it's not the outside stuff that's creating these allergies in me? I'm like, well, geez, that changes things, you know, altogether. So when I realized that, I started doing some herbal teas and paying more attention, boom, no more allergy medicine do I need. Mm. So just sometimes realizing that it is internal, my allergies, like they say sometimes, let's say that you're studying for a test and it's during the spring, okay? And you do poorly on that test. And then all of a sudden you have allergies every time spring goes around. I mean, this is a really simplified version but what it's saying is is that our psychosomatic issues can create allergies which i had no idea but anyway now i don't take my allergy medicine every day so that's amazing yeah yeah oh pamela it's been awesome talking with you i mean you're a true inspiration for people you're you know as we're recording this 44 years cancer free you know survived a plane crash has changed your life in so many positive ways and and you help other people do the same. Um, you know, it's really uh, an honor to talk to you and get to hear more about your story. Thank you so much for sharing it. And for people who want to get in touch with you as well, I know you do retreats and, and you have consulting and things like that. Where's the best place for them to get in touch with you? At PamelaChambers.com. Nice. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, thanks again. It was great. Uh, great having you here. It's great uh, talking with you. Honor, honor to speak with you, Nathan. Thanks for all that you do and namaste. All right. Namaste. Take care, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Nathan Crane podcast. Please make sure to subscribe and share this on social media. Then head over to NathanCrane.com for your free ebook. So when we're talking about, you know, what are these underlying causes and conditions of these chronic diseases, cancer diabetes, heart disease, they all have very similar, if not identical causes. And that's the thing is when we get to the root cause of these diseases, we can not only prevent these diseases from ever happening, but empower our bodies to heal from them. In every one of our cells, we have tens and hundreds of thousands of chemical reactions that are happening every second that are cycling uh, back and forth. It's like sort of a, a yin and yang. And you know, for me, the soul, soul's purpose is evolution. It doesn't care about comfort, it cares about evolution. Mm. And so I think so long as we are following our soul, then we will evolve. And I think what sometimes blocks us from living our purpose, from manifesting that next level of our expression is we have not evolved. There is also a time for letting go all the expectations and relax and just breathe and be grateful for what you have achieved.